Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Of the law. Look, these people don't care. We should. We're out of time. Banfield starts now. Big news. Welcome, everyone. I'm glad you're with me on the show tonight. I've got some exclusive and breaking news about that man who was arrested in Baltimore right after we went off the air last night, 11 o'clock last night Eastern. They picked up Jason Dean Billingsley after that manhunt uh, for the person they believed killed that tech exec in Baltimore. And boy, have we found out a lot more about this. Something I'm not sure the police know yet. Uh, it's just been breaking in the last uh, few hours, but it turns out he may have returned to the scene of the crime. The police are saying that Pavel LaPere was killed on Friday night. And a neighbor of Pavel LaPere, a friend of hers, who lived in the same building, says she saw Jason Dean Billingsley on Sunday, two days after the murder, trying to possibly get into her building. She says she panicked and started to delay putting the code into the door, had a conversation with him. I'm going to tell you all about this, give you the details of it in a moment. But if this is true, this is unbelievable. What was Jason Dean Billingsley doing at the scene of the murder for which he is now arrested and charged, and for which they are seeking a term of life, no parole, If he's convicted, what was he doing at the building on Sunday? They did not find Pava's body till Monday. Did he get in? Once this neighbor had waited and delayed and hopefully had, you know, chased him off. Did he eventually get in on Sunday? Did he do something on Sunday? Did he move a body on Sunday? It is an unbelievable exclusive development. I'm going to tell you all about it. I'm also going to show you exclusive access that we got to the roof of that building where Pablo LaPere's body was found. Um, There are some clues up there that are remarkable in terms of a murder weapon. And also it leaves a lot of questions. When you see the access to the roof and how difficult it is to get to the roof, It's going to open up a whole new area of this murder and this crime and why she was found on the roof and how she got up there. Was she alive when she went? That's coming up in a moment. I also have something else, uh, and that is the question for the police. If he is the man who did that vicious and violent rape, attempted murder, 
and arson, where two people were nearly burned alive. If he is the person who did that a week prior to Pava being killed, why wasn't anyone warned? Why didn't the APB go out on this guy? Why weren't people like Pava worried about guys trying to get in the building? Why weren't they told in this neighborhood, lock all doors, be on the lookout for a dangerous attempted killer and serial rapist? Why not? Because it didn't happen. They kept it close to their vests. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Also tonight, huge break in the Suzanne Morphew case. They have found her body three years after she disappeared on that bike ride. They found the bike. They found the helmet. They never found Suzanne. Didn't look like there was a crash. Didn't look like there was any blood at the scene. How did she disappear? And how did she show up nearly 50 miles away? So much to get into on what this means for her husband, who was charged and jailed, within the charges dropped, but with prejudice meaning, or without prejudice meaning, they, they can come after him again. If they get more evidence, they could come after him again, and they just got a big piece of evidence in her body. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Also, Cher. This case is getting more and more bizarre. Cher's son, uh, well-known drug abuser, been fighting his heroin addiction for a long time, His wife, who's a big divorce with right now, he's embroiled in a massive divorce with her. She says Cher sent goons to kidnap him from their hotel. She didn't call the police with it. That's weird. She just put it in a messy divorce document, accusing Cher of sending four goons to kidnap her drug-addicted son to either keep them apart for whatever reason, that's interesting, and get him into rehab for every reason we all understand. And for that... We are talking to a well-known celebrity interventionist tonight about what you can do and what you can't do if you're trying to save your loved one from either an abusive relationship, a dangerous relationship, a toxic relationship, or a relationship with drugs. Unbelievable answers, and the case got a little more detail today, too. I'm going to tell you what it was Cher was trying to do just earlier this month with regard to her son. Let's start, though, with Jason Dean Billingsley. Thank the Lord above. He's been cuffed, and he's been taken in, and they got him off the streets. It happened right after we signed off the air last night, 11 o'clock Eastern. They found him in a train station about 20 miles, 20 miles southwest of Baltimore, about 20 miles away from the murder scene of Pavel LaPere, which happened on Friday of last week, and maybe should not have happened because a week prior... The police allege he did something so heinous, atrocious, and cruel to an innocent couple with their child sleeping upstairs. They are in critical condition fighting for their lives tonight after having been burned alive. After she was raped and he was forced to watch his girlfriend being raped, bound with duct tape and handcuffs, doused with flammable liquid set on fire while alive. That happened a week before Pava was murdered. And nobody knew it. Police never told us that. They never told us about the hideous nature of that crime one week before Pavel LaPere was killed. They didn't tell us. We also discovered tonight that that man, Jason Dean Billingsley, may have returned to the scene of the murder of Pavel LaPere if he is the one who did it. He may have returned to the scene of his own murder two days later. She's murdered on Friday night. Her neighbor says he, she saw that man. She saw Jason Dean Billingsley behind her as she's trying to punch the code into her building, trying to get into the building. 
Two days later on Sunday, they haven't even discovered Pava's body yet. The neighbor can't possibly know she's dead on the roof of that luxury building. Can't possibly know that. The neighbor has no idea what happened a week before with the couple who was violently assaulted, raped, throat slashed, tried to burn them alive. She had no idea, but she had a sixth sense not to let the guy in behind her and to, to stall and wait to punch in the code and, and make small talk with this guy. The small talk with the big, giant guy behind her. Turns out he's now 65310. Not 64305, 65310, police say. That's the man who was standing behind her at that building where Pava's body was on the roof. We're going to take you up to the roof. We have exclusive pictures tonight of what that scene looked like. But was he looking for another victim, potentially? Was he looking to get in the building to do something to the crime scene because no one had discovered it yet? Was he looking for something else? Why was he there on Sunday? Why did the police not tell us about what happened the week before? Why did no one get any warnings? Why did Pava not get a warning? Why did that neighbor of hers, that woman, who nearly could have bought it, but didn't, why didn't she get a warning? Police tell us apparently that they were tracking him from September 19th from that arson and rape. But they lost him. And you know how we know they lost him? Because if they were tracking him, they would have seen him go into that building and ride the elevator with Pava. Turns out she let him in kindly. They don't know if she knew him or not, but she's on surveillance, according to the police, riding up the elevator with that accused murderer and accused rape. No, he's a convicted rape. There's so many rapes. I can't even I can't even use the right terminology. He was in for 30 years for a, a violent rape. He was in for assaults. He was let out early for good behavior. Whole other issue. But we're getting details. We're getting a lot of details of what happened in that very, very violent, violent rape and assault and arson. Okay? So he allegedly broke down the door, tied up the couple, forced the boyfriend to watch the rape while he was duct taped and handcuffed, slit her throat, doused both of them in flammable liquid, and set them on fire alive with a child, a five-year-old child, upstairs. Those two are in critical condition in the hospital. We don't know if they're going to survive. The child is going to survive. Baltimore Police Commissioner was asked uh, if they made a mistake by not telling everybody that this savage was on the loose. A savage. And they said, nope, they did not think. They made a mistake. And here's the police commissioner saying why. Take a look. I don't think we made a mistake in this case. I think our detectives made the same decision we make every single time based on the facts and circumstances that we have. And as soon as we realized he had committed an act that seemed to be random, um, that we still don't know connections there yet, we put the flyer out. Well, if it seemed to be random, he was still a savage, allegedly, right? So shouldn't we all have been warned? Shouldn't Pava have been warned? I want to show you some pictures we have from the Daily Mail of what the, uh, what the basement apartment looked like, where those two people were nearly burned alive while their child was sleeping upstairs and suffering smoke inhalation. Pictures show total disarray and charred remnants. This is the outside of the building. That's the inside where this horrific crime happened. Unbelievable that this could have happened with no knowledge to the rest of us. 
right in the neighborhood. We're also getting new court document information about Pava's injuries. He was, uh, she was allegedly uh, choked and beaten with a brick, beaten so badly that she lost her teeth. There is a chilling list of things that they found at the crime scene on that roof, and I'm going to tell you about that in just a moment. The charges that Mr. Billingsley is now facing, first-degree murder, assault first and second degree, reckless endangerment for strangling, and dangerous weapon with intent to injure. I want to bring in News Nation's Evan Lambert now. Uh, he is live in front of Pavel LaPere's apartment building. Evan, you have uncovered some pretty remarkable exclusive information. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you've uh, discovered and what you've learned about this crime. Sure, Ashley. So a lot of it tonight coming from this neighbor of Pavla Pears living in this building. She talked with our producer, Chelsea Jones, and she really just took us through what happened, as you alluded to, when... Billingsley allegedly showed back up here on Sunday night. Walk with me for a little bit. So essentially what she says is that she was coming in on Sunday. She was going to type in the code on the keypad here. This is a secure building. This door won't open without the right code or someone letting you in. And she got this vibe because this guy was behind her and she said it didn't feel right. So she kind of stalled and she would not let him in. Uh, this is something that we've tried to verify with Baltimore police tonight, and they tell us that they won't comment on what any witnesses have said, but they are working to really firm up this timeline every moment, really, that led up to Pavel LaPere's murder. And that would have been on Friday, two days before this neighbor says that Billingsley came it's, back. It's crazy. It is absolutely crazy what you're discovering from the neighbor. So do we know, Evan... She paused in, in putting that code into the keypad, hoping that he would uh, keep moving on. Did she say what they discussed when she looked around and, and talked to him? She didn't get too detailed about their conversation, but she did say that he said he was looking for some other building, something. We're in the 300 block here. Uh, he said he was looking for some kind of building in the 500 block. So I don't know why that would convince her to try to let him in. But obviously, she said, based off of that conversation, she told our producer, look, you know, I didn't feel right. I felt like something was wrong. And she kind of stalled. And it, it seems like he kind of didn't pursue it anymore. And, and she was able to avoid that situation and get inside without him following her in. That's what she told us tonight. Does she, does she know? I lost a little of your audio for a moment there, but does she know if he eventually did get in? Did someone else in the building say, same thing happened to me, but I did let him in, or same thing happened to me, and I didn't let him in? Does she know anything about that, what happened after she finally went inside? So this was all this was all new to us just this evening. She said uh, she was the, the only account that we're hearing besides the fact that he was here on Friday. So this is brand new that he may have shown up a second time. Uh, nothing else from anyone else in the building as some reporters the last couple of days have been talking to people who lived inside here. So it seemed like she was the only one who saw this. She told us that she reported it to the police. That's why we tried to verify with uh, with them tonight about this. And they, they said they wouldn't get into specifics with us. Uh, but they, they didn't say that this is you know made up or that this is that this doesn't sound real, that they're working to build this timeline. So, you know, this this person let our producer in, clearly lives here. Uh, she, she seemed totally credible. Uh, and so this is what she she's telling us about their interaction on Sunday, and I believe it was Sunday afternoon, she said.
You know, I just learned something I didn't know about you. Uh, you're from Baltimore. You know this area. This is uh, this is a, a crime in your own community. As I'm, I'm just finding out. I'm really sorry about that. About that, Evan. I also know that you got exclusive access to the roof, and some photographs and video. Can you tell me what you saw? Right. So we got walked up there, and so just to kind of set the stage for this. This is a nice building. It's an old building that has been renovated. It's very nice inside. The lobby is nice. The units look nice. We were looking at some of the pictures of those. But it seems like this roof, it's not an amenity. It's not advertised on the website of the people that run this building. It's not a place that really people are meant to go, per se. And so the area leading up to it, as you can see some of those exclusive pictures and video, uh, is not really well taken care of or, or manicured uh, because it's not meant really for people to be coming through there. Uh, we did get a sense from this neighbor that, that it may have been a place that Pava spent some time going to the roof. Uh, and so, you know, it's clearly accessible and unlocked, uh, but it's not like there's a pool or lounge chairs or anything up there uh, to observe the view from the top. And you can see, uh, if we have this video, that you really have to work to get up there. There is this small ladder, and you have to climb up. We are told that there are some other ways to the roof, a couple other staircases, uh, but it's not like you can just ride the elevator straight up to the roof, walk off. Uh, and so, obviously, that, as you mentioned earlier, Ashley, uh, brings up a lot of questions about, you know, did, did Pava go up there willingly? We, we know, according to the police charging documents, that she was in the elevator with this suspect who they say murdered her. Uh, but did she go up to the roof willingly? You know, it, it, did he, it, it would be really tough to, to force, force drag someone up there. Uh, and so a lot of questions based on the way that you access that well, roof. Uh, you, know, you know, my producer took some video. That's it. Go ahead. That I just wanted to say that we're looking at your video, but that still picture of the access to the roof with only a ladder does not indicate that it's easy to walk up there with a body. I mean, if he took her body up there after killing her, how on earth would he have climbed the ladder with that body? I mean, that would not, it's not impossible, but certainly very difficult, which makes me wonder if he forced her up there. Or if she went up, you know, at knife point or at gunpoint, it is. Look at that access. That's a very unusual way to access that roof to know that the body was up there. Right. And from everything we know, I was at the vigil uh, a couple nights ago. Everything we know about how her friends and family describe her, this is somebody that talked to anyone, that you know, started up a conversation, seemed to be very trusting uh, and, and really uh, supportive of people in her community. So, you know, the way that you know, the surveillance video is described, you know, you could almost see the uh, naivete of, of her to kind of welcome him in, possibly. So we, we're, we're not sure if at, at what point it turned into, you know, a forcible situation, but at least the very beginning, uh, you know, it, it begs a lot of questions. You know, was she, you know, did she want to show him the roof? You know, those are all things that, you know, police are, are investigating right now. And what else did you discover in terms of the um, items that were found uh, around her body and at the crime scene? 
Right, so this came from the charging documents released late this afternoon, and it's pretty graphic, uh, so we want to warn our viewers about that. But the brick that you mentioned, that was up there on the, at the crime scene where they found her body. Uh, three teeth, it was very specific, the charging affidavit about three teeth being found there. It, we know that she suffered blunt force trauma, so uh, you can kind of assume that, that they may have been uh, her teeth, and as a result of the struggle and the beating, uh, there's also a broken hair clip, blood, uh, red shoes that are believed to have belonged to Pava. So these are all things that uh, crime scene technicians, when they went up there on the roof, documented, and this made its way into this charging affidavit to be able to arrest this guy, Jason Billingsley. Unbelievable reporting, Evan, and you know, with all those loose bricks that you could see from your photos on the roof, it makes a little more sense now why maybe the murder weapon was the brick that they described uh, had used, you know, he had allegedly used to, uh, to bludgeon her to death. Evan Lambert um, reporting for us live in Baltimore, his own hometown. Thank you for that. Excellent work. I want to make a few more notes here about the um, the state attorney in Baltimore. Uh, his name is Ivan Bates. He says he's going to seek life, no parole. Good, because this guy should never have been out in the first place. That's a whole other conversation. Um, I wanted to also show you where he lived because we've discovered something else about Jason Billingsley. Where he lived, it's all in the same vicinity where uh, Pava was uh, murdered, where the couple was assaulted, but it's also right next to a recreation center that's called a kid's safe zone. I think we have a map of that. I want to pop that up there. Let me just repeat this. A guy who is on the sex offender registry and has to check in every single uh, three months. He is living right next to a recreation center center, uh, that's labeled a kid safe zone. There's Billingsley's place and there's the kid safe zone. So that happened. And can I remind you of the crimes that the guy who was living right next to the kids' safe zone uh, was uh, convicted of and accused of? In 09, he punched and robbed a random man on the street to rob him. Yeah. Again, in 2010, he robbed and punched and held down his ex-girlfriend and stole money. In 2013, he forced a sexual act on a woman at knife point, choked a woman. Uh, he got 30 years for that, but was let out for good behavior. He's accused of this horrible arson and rape where he... Uh, allegedly slit a woman's throat and then tried to burn her and her boyfriend alive after he forced the boyfriend to watch him rape her. And then, of course, the accusation that he strangled and murdered Pavel LaPere. I want to bring in Dan Eckert. He is a criminal defense attorney and a former federal agent. He's also a prosecutor. Dan, why, just get me off the ledge, why did the police not think that somebody this savage who was on the loose and being tracked by them, who they lost... Why was it not important for us to all know about it? Because if those girls had known about it, I think Pavo may not have let him in. And certainly the neighbor who told us would have been a hell of a lot more uh, careful with her actions and might have called police right away. Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think what you're going to find is a after action investigation of exactly what the police did, uh, why they made the decision not to release uh, that information to the public. Uh, one of the things that was disclosed during the press conference, I guess, is that there was there was surveillance. The question that I would have is what type of surveillance with that? Because that can vary depending on the experience of the uh, investigators, the number of agents that are deployed, the assets they have, whether they're doing electronic or just actual physical um, surveillance on that individual. So it's very troubling because I think this is probably maybe the third time I've been on your show and we've talked about cases that are like this where somebody 
goes out and they commits another they commit another violent act or violent crime. And if the police would have engaged the public with the social media, with all the things that we have at our disposal, um, you're, you're probably right. This this second uh, the second murder would never have occurred. Well, not only could they maybe have prevented Pavel Lepera's death, but might have caught him even earlier because all of those eyeballs would have been on a, again, 65310, I think he is. It's all up and down the, the ranks, but he is a massive guy, easy to spot. And so their idea that they were worried about he'll go underground if we go public, well, great. The, the result was Pava's going underground. One last really quick question here. The male victim from the rape and the assault and the, you know, the couple that was nearly burned alive, that male victim's mom uh, said that she wishes the police had done more to spread the word about Billingsley, uh, Billingsley's identity because, quote, that lady's life could have been saved. That's Latrice Johnson. Um, it's just unconscionable. The other issue, Dan, is the, I, I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, is it diminution credits that you get uh, for good behavior? And, you know, a guy who gets 30 years with 16 suspended gets out in under 10. Is that what, does this whole system need to be looked at again for sex offenders and maybe they don't qualify for good behavior? Yeah, Maryland, it's diminution uh, is, I think, the proper uh, pronunciation. There's about 38 states approximately that have similar programs. Some states have none. Uh, Michigan, for example, doesn't give any credit. Um, but what's interesting about Maryland is uh, it looks like he's, he's a sex offender. He's eligible for 20 days a month, um, and he can get up to 50% of his, his sentence reduced, which is pretty significant. That's on the higher end. Uh, Florida, for example, won't let you get more than 15% of your total sentence reduced. So it's, it's a prevalent um, incentive for inmates, and the federal system has that as well. But the question is who's eligible for the program, um, how it's being administered, and, yeah. and that's something that I think the politicians should look at um, in Maryland, particularly after this case. Yeah. Violent sex offenders, maybe no, no more uh, opportunity for that. Dan Eckert, thank you for being with us. We're going to continue to follow this story, of course. Appreciate thank your you. insight. Still to come, a missing person case that made headlines all across the U.S. On Mother's Day three years ago, Colorado mom Suzanne Morphew left her house on an innocent bike ride and vanished. Found her bike, found her helmet. But now they have found her body, finally, about 40 miles from home. What happened to her on that ride? And more importantly, is it going to tell us how she died and who killed her? That's next. On Mother's Day three years ago, Suzanne Morphew decided to go for a bike ride and she never came home. They found her bike at the bottom of a steep ravine, and they found her helmet, but they didn't find her. And they also didn't find any blood or any evidence of a crash, just the bike and the helmet. And so it was quite a mystery until all of a sudden friends started coming out saying, well, they were getting a divorce. And one friend said they were fighting over finances and that Suzanne had a boyfriend. And wouldn't you know it, her husband, Barry Morphew, was arrested and charged with her murder. And then a year later case was dropped. All sorts of wrangling about the prosecutors and what they did and how they didn't operate appropriately in discovery and all the rest, but the case was dropped. But it was dropped without prejudice, which means they can come after him again if they find more evidence. And guess what they just found? They just found more evidence. They found Suzanne Morphew. They found her body. Weirdly, she disappeared from Maysville, Colorado, but she was found over 40 miles away in Moffat, 
Colorado. Her family says, we look forward to finding long-awaited justice for Suzanne and the successful prosecutions of those involved in her disappearance. But will they? Will they find those involved? I want to bring in correspondent Brooke Schaefer. She's joining me live now from Colorado tonight. You know, Brooke, the key question is, does finding the body mean they're going to find the killer? Not necessarily, though I will say investigators here in Colorado said, you know, finding her remains was absolutely a critical part of the investigation. But as of right now, they're remaining pretty tight lipped about where the investigation stands, only to say that they haven't made any arrests since finding her remains. Uh, Something to keep in mind, though, investigators here in Colorado have not said what condition they found the remains in. And so a local prosecutor here saying that could pose a challenge for investigators uh, moving forward. So do you think think he was involved in this? I think um, I think I think Suzanne had been a her entire life. I think he was uh, uh, very narcissistic, controlling, um, woman abuser. I definitely think he had an active part in this. Yes. Uh, What would justice look like for you then? Um, Somebody being accountable for a murder. It wasn't foul play. She didn't run away. She didn't go on a bike ride. Everything was just, just plot and planned out perfectly. Just like you'd done it before. You think you think that Barry had done this before? I do. I don't think he is innocent. Okay, so you were just listening to a woman who lives here in Salida, Colorado. This is where uh, Suzanne lived with her husband and her two daughters. Um, that woman, she works in a salon here. She said she didn't know Suzanne personally, but this is a really tight-knit community, Ashley. A lot of people here, they know this story. They've been following it for the last three and a half years. Um, and even if they didn't know Suzanne personally, uh, they knew who she was. They knew friends of friends. Maybe they shopped with her. They knew her kids. Um, and really what I have heard over and over is that she was a devoted mother. People are not convinced that she would have just left her daughters and abandoned them. And like you just heard in that interview, uh, everyone that I have spoken with so far here in Salida is convinced that Barry, her husband, had something to do with this. Well, and they're certainly uh, putting up their protestations with his daughters uh, in tow as well. Uh, Brooke Schaefer, great work out there. Keep us posted on the developments. I cannot wait to hear what they discover when they autopsy those remains. Thank you for that. Brooke Schaefer reporting live from Salida, Colorado. Uh, Still to come, how far would you go to save your child from drug addiction? And what if that child of yours was actually a grown man? You are a wealthy celebrity with a take-no-prisoners reputation like this lady. Cher, the one and only Cher, now being accused of using force to get her adult son into rehab. Is it a kidnapping or is it tough love? And is it legal if it even happened? Country's hottest interventionist joins me next. So the the story of Cher is getting uh, uh, wilder. I brought this to you last night. If you didn't stick around for the end of the show, shame on you. But it is a great story. Uh, She's not talking, so it's really hard to get her side on this. But the reporting is that 
Cher's son, Elijah Blue Allman, who she had with Greg Allman back in the 70s, has had a very public struggle with heroin addiction, and she has been trying to do everything to, to help him. Uh, looks like she's not too fond of his wife, uh, Mary Angela King. And at one point when Elijah Blue and Mary Angela were in a hotel a year ago in New York, uh, the allegation from the wife in a messy divorce document, shall we say. Let's just put it there. The allegation comes in a divorce document. She never called the police with this or anything. She says that four goons showed up at the hotel door and kidnapped Elijah Blue, her husband, and took him to she has no idea where. And she says one of the goons said, share hired us, which I also have a hard time believing from a goon because they probably wouldn't tell you who hired them. But that's what Mary Angela King says. Right. So now it's like, whoa, did Cher hire four guys to physically grab her heroin addicted son and pull him out of a relationship she didn't maybe approve of in terms of the health of it for her addicted son and get him into rehab? It didn't work. Apparently, uh, he was out of uh, rehab and living at the Chateau Marmont Hotel up until not too long ago, and on the day that he was found passed out in front of the Chateau Marmont, which is also a storied hotel where plenty of stars have died from drug addiction. Uh, it's also a super fun and nice place where a lot of stars go. Um, on the day that he was found outside, um, passed out, she apparently had planned an intervention earlier this month for Elijah Blue. And he apparently entered rehab right after that. But the question is, what can you do as a parent if you're desperate to save your kid? And that's why Tim Ryan is my next guest. He's an expert in interventions. He's one of the most sought-after speakers on the topic in the country. Um, he is the author of From Dope to Hope, A Man in Recovery. He speaks from experience because he is a former heroin addict himself. So, Tim, this story of Cher, uh, I wondered if you... Can you physically remove a loved one from a situation like this allegation suggests if that person doesn't want to go into rehab? I've always understood you have to be you have to buy in. Nobody wants to go to rehab, Ashley. Nobody. That's why a lot of families hire people like my wife and I as professional interventionists. But there's a there's a magical dance to how an intervention works. And unfortunately, if families don't do them and prepare properly, nine out of 10 times they go sideways. And to answer your question, no, you can't force anyone into treatment unless you're in the state of Florida. They have a law called the Baker Act to where if my wife was harming herself or a severe alcoholic or drug addict, I could call the police, have her Baker acted because she's a harm and danger to herself. They'll put her on a five to seven day psych hold, then you can go in front of a judge and have that individual charged under the Marchman Act. Bottom line, they'll send an officer to the psych ward or the hospital and they'll say, so-and-so, you've been charged under the Marchman Act. You have two choices. You can go to jail or you can go to treatment. Most people go to jail. It's four, I mean, treatment, it's four months minimum. But if they leave treatment, they're going to go do six months in jail. What happened in this situation you have a mother that loves her son. Parents will do whatever they need to do so their children don't die. I'd have gone in with my own talons if I were strong enough. I, I certainly would have. I, I would never um, fault Cher if, if she did. It's not sure that she did. There was no police report filed. Can I just ask, you've only got about 30 seconds left, but if you've tried interventions over and over and they don't work, then w what's up your sleeve? What do you got left? 
you know, it, sometimes it's just getting someone on the phone to communicate, to plant the seeds, to build the trust that when they put their hand up, they're ready to go. You get them into treatment immediately. Nobody wants to go. It's a process. It's a journey. But they're very, very successful. And that is the start of recovery. Some people go the first time. Some people relapse 10 times. Then they get it. Never give up hope. If they got a heartbeat, they've got hope. Put your hand up. Ask for help. Yeah. I, I, ha- I said I had 20 seconds left, and I, I actually overtime, but I do want to ask you because there's some pretty big money in being a caretaker, right? She'd apparently hired a caretaker while he was at the Chateau Marmont or a, ce- a celebrity sober companion. Does that work? Sober companions absolutely work, especially with high-profile families, individuals, business entrepreneurs. They're in such a different world that it's good to have someone with them, but this person is watching them 24-7, making sure they're going to the gym, to meetings, to therapy appointments, why that individual is figuring out how to figure out what this life of recovery is like. But yes, it can be expensive. Amazing. I mean, it could be two to 10 grand a day based on the individual and where you're traveling. And if you've got shares money, drop in the bucket and worth every penny. Uh, Tim, I got to have you back on this because I'm still waiting to see where the, you know, the chips fall on this one. But thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Ashley. Just a quick note uh, about talking to Tim here. If you are seeking resources for yourself or maybe for a family member, you can check out Tim's website, dopetohope.com. Very good information there. Coming up next, it is one of the most mysterious and frustrating murder mysteries in American history. But tonight, there may be some movement. Police say they have new evidence, potentially, and new persons of interest in the murder of John Benet Ramsey. All this according to a report. Does this mean that justice is about to be served almost 30 years since this crime? Her dad, John Ramsey, live with me next. It is hard to believe that John Benet Ramsey would be 33 years old today. Just let that sink in. John Benet Ramsey died at six years old, murdered in her home in Colorado, day after Christmas, 1996. She would be 33 years old today. And that, while I know it's not lost on you, it is definitely not lost on her family and loved ones because we still don't know who did it. We still don't have the suspect. But what we do have, according to a new report, is potentially new persons of interest. Yes, I said plural, new persons of interest maybe even new possible evidence. I mean, it, it's astounding. They've been working with the country's top DNA experts, you know, for months. Um, trace DNA, very small amount, was found on John Benet's clothing, the murder scene. But what does this new persons of interest report really mean? Um, John Ramsey is with me live now. I've talked to you over the years for decades, John, and here we are again. With, I, I don't know if this is hopeful news. I don't know if it's more than just a report. What are you learning? Well, you know, the Boulder Police Department went through a fairly major shakeup. I don't know, in the last year. Uh, they brought in a new chief of police, a uh, new assistant chief uh, from the outside of the department. Uh, Citizens Review Board recommended five or six of their detectives be terminated. Uh, the detective that was responsible for our team for the last 25 years was uh, not terminated, but put on night patrol. So there's a lot of good things happening, we think. 
in terms of the leadership and uh, basically straightening out of the police department. We had the opportunity to meet with the chief of police and her assistant and the district attorney about, I don't know, two or three months ago. And it was a good meeting. It was a long meeting. Uh, I was impressed with their professionalism and uh, believe in their commitment to get this solved. Uh, so that's encouraging. Uh, you know, we still hope, and we don't know if this is being done or not, but we know there's evidence that was taken from the crime scene that was never tested, uh, was sent off for testing, but was never tested for DNA. But that should be done. And we've asked that be done and be done in, in um, the cutting edge labs. You know, we were told that the government doesn't have the latest technology, unfortunately. But there are one or two cutting edge labs that have the latest technology. That's where this testing ought to be done. I don't know where it's being done. And then use the public genealogy database uh, with whatever information we get to research and basically do a backwards family tree, which has been wildly well, successful in solving some very old cold and cases. It, yes. It really has. I mean, um, it, it seems to be par for the course now for all investigations to use genealogy. I'm curious about this report. I mean, I, I have to be clear that the report came out in a publication called The, the Messenger. Um, and The Messenger mm -hmm. reported that suspects and witnesses can come from a variety of places. This is what the police source told them. Uh, it's not just the DNA. It's what happens when you investigate a very difficult case. There are new people to look at. So hopefully figure out who mm -hmm. killed um, John Benet, you know, I, I'm wondering if I, I get it if they don't share a lot. Um, they can't screw up an investigation after this long. But do you do you read right. anything into that report that they may be further ahead than we have thought? Well, we're hopeful that's the case. Yeah, I, I mean, it's encouraging information if it's accurate and correct. Uh, very encouraging. And um yeah, so we're very hopeful. I mean, this all these changes that were taking place taking place with the, within the police department were positive, um, and this may be uh, a result of those changes. So let's hope. Yeah, I'm, I'm encouraged. Um, John, I hope you and I are going to meet about the arrest. That that's when I hope uh, our next you know interview is going to be, and then I hope we talk again at the conviction. And, and all points in between. Thank you, as always, for well, uh, being a guest well, on the program. And I, I consider you a friend after all these years. Well, thank you, Ashley. I really appreciate your continued interest in this. It helps. All right. Well, we'll talk soon, my friend. Be well. Thank you. John Ramsey joining us live uh, tonight. Okay. Uh, I'm going to play you some video of, of what we see on Britney Spears' um, public feed regularly. These, they're kind of silly dances. I mean, she's sort of constantly dancing. Um, and most people have just thought they're harmless and they're silly. But the more recent dance, she introduced something extraordinarily dangerous. After the break, I'll let you know what it was and why the police came banging on her door. Next. Britney Spears, uh, one of her more recent posts, dancing on Instagram with knives. Uh, she said they weren't real knives, but it's hard to believe that when you hear her clink them together. That's coming up. Have a listen to this. Mother's Day is almost here. 
and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.